SpaceX-3, the latest commercial resupply mission to the International Space Station. As SpaceX continues to push rocket technology to new heights, what opportunities open up for students, NASA, and their CubeSats? How will experiments conducted on station help NASA understand the complexities of living in space? Find out next on NASA Edge. We're finally back here at the Kennedy Space Center for another live show. You're watching NASA Edge after a, a brief delay. Brief delay. <laughs> a month. Uh, uh, a month, yeah. Brief uh, month. Here on April 14th, uh, SpaceX-3 to resupply mission to the ISS and the launch of the Alana 5 uh, CubeSats is finally going to get underway. Well, welcome to the best of the SpaceX-3 scrubbed launch show. I tell you what, this was the third attempt at the time when we were doing the live show. The first attempt we went down, we did the pre-packaged interviews, and it was scrubbed before we even got to the press site. And then the second attempt happened before we went down to KSC. So you figure third time's a charm, we're in the middle of the live show, 20 minutes in, scrubbed again. And I was in right in the middle of an interview when I got the word that the uh, launch was scrubbed. But we had all of the SMEs, we had all of our students from uh, the CubeSats there, so we actually shot everything as if the show were going on and the launch was going to be live. And we got all that material and we have it today for the Best Up Show. Because we knew on the 18th that the weather was only 40% chance of favorable conditions. So we said, let's go ahead and get those interviews while we have them there. Yeah, because if we had come back down there, we wouldn't have had the SMEs, we wouldn't have the students. Right. So fortunately, we got all that material, which is why we are here today for the Best of the SpaceX 3 launch show. So sit back and enjoy the show. Today we have a big emphasis on science, on the life sciences in particular, with all the experiments that are launching. And I just wondered, what is NASA's overall philosophy and goals in terms of uh, using things like the International Space Station to promote these scientific experiments? So NASA's overall goal is to really exercise the microgravity environment on station to its full potential in the physical science areas, in the life science areas, to benefit Earth science, to benefit humans, and to be benefit long-duration space flights. It's got to be very interesting, or at least unique, to have such a big platform up in space where there is zero, zero gravity. Is there a lot of competition for these experiments, for these slots, uh, to actually get up into space and test some of these theories? There is some competition for the slots. They are primarily responses to NASA research announcements, and they're awarded grants for their ability to get better research in microgravity conditions. And that means that it's not just NASA scientists sending experiments up. These are scientists even outside of NASA, perhaps all over the country, is that correct? All over the country. They primarily focus on research announcements that are responsive to the decadal survey and evaluation for the next decade on what science is relevant for a station, what science is relevant for space, and where we would get the most benefit for doing space research. What does NASA benefit from opening the door, so to speak, to all these scientific experiments? Uh, we hope NASA's on the leading edge of some major breakthroughs to benefit here on Earth, as well as for long duration space flights. The more we learn and the more we expand, the more we help ourselves through even side ideas. You also mean there might be some benefit beyond just what happens the in space. The spin-offs, okay. just the activity to get to space, to operate and to learn. We have lots of benefits here on Earth. 
And one of the great benefits is all this data that's collected. It's not just for NASA. You're willing to share that data? How does so, that work? So we're get, we are on the brink of trying to open up the data that investigators identify uh, and open source it so that it's available for years to come for future research science, not just for a specific um, science application or investigation today. Any chance uh, that I could submit an experiment, like an old science project, and get that onto the space station? There's a chance. There's a chance. Uh, that research actually is uh, hypothesis-driven. Mm. It is uh, peer-reviewed and then awarded grants uh, to, and to enable it to research on orbit. But in all fairness, you mean scientific peers, not just my personal peers. That's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, i tell you what. Well, we're very excited to, to learn all about these experiments, and we're going to do that. In fact, when we were here a month ago, Ago, getting ready for the first attempt at launch, Franklin had an opportunity to interview Trent Smith about a couple of these experiments. We're here at the Space Station Processing Facility where most of the experiments going to the ISS are ready. Today we're here with Trent Smith who is the project manager for Veggie. And uh, Trent, you're going to talk to us about a couple of experiments going to ISS on this upcoming launch. Y yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about Veggie. So Veggie is a facility that's flying up on SpaceX 3, and the whole idea behind Veggie is it's a low power, passive system to grow large plants. Until now, we've not grown a large crop type of plants on space station. And the intent of Veggie is to allow astronauts to care for plants, kind of like a garden. And the end goal of Veggie is to allow astronauts to grow a little bit of food and eat some fresh food. How does this apparatus work? You have the LED light cap, which has red light, which plants need, and it has green lights really for the astronauts because when they're looking at their plants, the first thing you see is the plant that you're going to eat, and uh, if it doesn't look appetizing, chances are they won't want to eat it. So the green light's really for the astronaut. And so you have the LEDs to uh, give the plant the light they need, and then you have uh, these uh, pillows for the uh, roots to grow down into, the plant to grow up out of, and below the pillows, what we call the root mat, and it has the additional moisture and uh, nutrient content for the plant. How do the astronauts get water into the veggie system? So we have a water bag and we have a three-way valve with the tubing and they use a syringe to pull the water into the syringe and they'll actuate the valve and then they'll deploy the plunger and put the water into either the root mat or the pillow. The water gets in there, it has a time-release fertilizer and the wicking material allows the media to come up to the seed. The seed germinates, the roots go down, the plant goes up and hopefully you got some happy lettuce. Okay, so while the plants are growing on the ISS, you're also going to be growing plants here. Right, so here at Kennedy Space Center, we have our uh, chambers which uh, match exactly the uh, parameters on, on board Space Station. Space Station has a variable carbon dioxide level that ranges between three and 4,000 parts per million. So that's pretty high. Plants, a lot of plants like that, some plants don't. So what we do is we, uh, we match that to uh, make sure that the only variable that changes is gravity, and that's the value of comparing a ground study to an on-orbit study. Veggie's a very interesting experiment, but you're also working with another one called Apex. Tell us a little bit about it. Right, so uh, we have uh, our project manager here at NASA for that's Jose Camacho, and our principal investigator is uh, Dr. Hammond. And Dr. Hammond's using yeast as his model organism to investigate microgravity effects. And he's using a facility aboard space station built by a company called Nanorax. Nanorax has this plate reader on orbit, and we also have plate readers here at Kennedy Space Center for our ground controls. And he's using yeast as a model organism because it's very similar to human cells. And he has fluorescent biotags in it. And as the yeast go through their metabolic pathways, these biomarkers will turn off and on and give them a tremendous amount of data about what's going on. 
and he has a clinostat here at Kennedy to also confuse the gravity for the organism by spinning. So, so the clinostat is actually going to spin to kind of disorient the the G vector. The G vector yes. of the yeast so that it doesn't know which way is up. Yes, making sir. it think like it's in... It just doesn't know which way the G is. Right. So between having a, where you know the G vector and then the other ground control where the G vector's confused and then in microgravity where there is no G vector, then he's going to get a tremendous amount of data. And understanding these metabolic pathways in yeast have implications to humans. If there's a uh, disease or symptom that has a similar metabolic pathway, then one can conceivably craft a drug or chemical to help with that symptom or disease. Why do we do these types of tests? We, we do these types of tests because at the end of the day, if we're going to go out into the solar system, think of veg, we're going to need to eat food. And in many cases, we think we're going to need a bioregenerative system that involves in some capacity plants. You're going to have gray water that the plants can clean and use. You're going to have all these closed systems that we're going to have to refine. So, so space stations, a perfect test bed for these types of technologies so we can go out to Mars and these other destinations. Dave, we're talking about Brick House, um, an experiment that's going up on the ISS. Tell us, what, what exactly is Brick House? Um, the Brick is, stands for Biological Research in Canisters. It's a research platform that researchers can fly their experiments into space. And typically, we fly bacteria and plant samples up to perform experiments. How does it actually do the science that you put in it? Brick is a fairly small container compared to most experiments on the station. This small little polycarbonate block allows us to take the samples from the scientists, put them in petri dishes, insert that petri dish into six what we call petri dish fixation units which we then load with either a growth solution or a fixative solution. If we want something to grow, we inject the growth solution. If we want to stop all the biological processes, then we inject the fixative solution. But that all happens on orbit. So we usually have a complement of four brick canisters that fly up. They'll spend however much time is dedicated to growth, and then the astronauts basically take a small caulking gun and we have a rod, a metal rod that we insert into that. The astronauts will insert that rod into the petri dish fixation unit that forces the piston down that drives that fluid into the petri dish itself. So it keeps them separated from the biological specimens inside and once that happens the experiment is generally completed once completed, they go into storage or get ready for flight back. Do the astronauts use the, the gun for anything else, like caulking uh, potential uh, leaks in the ISS or anything like that? Uh, no, they can't use it for that, but uh, we recently devised a plan that if that uh, actuator tool, is what we call it, does fail, uh, we have uh, gone through an exercise where we're going to go have the astronauts get a hammer to go perform that function for us. What cannot be fixed by a hammer? <laughs> Everything can be fixed by a hammer, usually. Stop! Hammer time! 
So Ralph, we have one more science experiment to talk about, and that's Biotube, and I think we're saving the best for last. Yes, you are. So tell me a little bit about Biotube. Um, Biotube is a, an experiment that's flying to the International Space Station that's basically designed to study the gravity response system of plants. How are we actually going to do that in, in a reduced gravity environment? Uh, we actually, in effect, substitute a gravitational field for a magnetic field. So we actually fly, as part of this experiment, high powerful magnets that these seeds are grown in the presence of magnetic fields. Inside the plant roots, we have these structures called amyloplasts. And amyloplasts are attracted by gravity. There's starch grains in them that tend to move the amyloplasts in the direction of root growth, which is towards gravity. However, in zero gravity or microgravity, without that field, and in the presence of magnetic field, magnetic field works in kind of the opposite effect. The starch grains inside these amyloplasts are diamagnetic, so they're repelled by a magnetic field. So in this case, we're gonna see our roots when they get exposed to the magnetic field move away from the direction of the field. Now I understand we have a tight deadline for this particular experiment. Uh, yes, we do. This payload was really a legacy payload, as we refer to them, designed for the shuttle era. So the whole content of the experiment was meant to fly on one shuttle mission, which was basically about three weeks or so. So what we've got here is a case where we've got biology that has a certain lifespan. These seeds are viable for a certain period of time. And we have chemicals that are designed to fix or preserve them that have a certain span of effectivity. And so we have to kind of get the whole experiment to fly within about a month, which means we have to go late load installation on SpaceX. We couldn't install it very early on. And we have to get the biology back to our labs as soon as possible after the mission. So right now we've been working very hard to organize our payload and our experiment to be able to do that in the term that we have for SpaceX 3. Now that was just a few segments from the science portion of the show, uh, but coming up next we have some interviews from the Alana 5 mission, starting off with an interview that I did with Scott Higginbotham, followed up by some students in their CubeSats. Now remember, this is the best of, so if you want to watch the complete show, the hour and 30 long uh, live portion or pseudo live portion, uh, go to our Ustream account, ustream.tv slash NASA Edge. I'm here today with Scott Higginbotham, who is the mission manager for ELANA 5. ELANA, the educational launch of nanosatellites 5. Yes, indeed. Scott, tell me a little bit about your, your job as a mission manager and what you do. Well, I help find rides for CubeSats into space. And for this particular mission, we worked with the International Space Station Program and SpaceX to take advantage of, of some excess performance that the Falcon 9 rocket has and squeeze some peapods onto the mission so that we can deploy some CubeSats while the Dragon goes off to the station. Now, uh, I understand on, on the last uh, CubeSat deployment, the deployers were different than they are today with the Falcon 9. Why do they change from space vehicle to space vehicle? Well, each rocket is a little different and the environments that they present to the dispensers and the CubeSats are a little different. For this case, uh, we had to actually help design an interface between the dispensers and the rocket. So we had a contract with SpaceX and they designed what we call the surfboards. And there's two surfboards on the bottom of the second stage and that's where we've mounted the four P-Pods that we're flying on today's mission. When will that deployment take place? Will it uh, take place uh, once the uh, capsule gets to orbit, after it docks with the ISS? When in the, the, the mission will this deployment take place? Well, the, uh, the rocket will lift off and the first stage will drop off. And of course, as we've all heard, it's going to try to land in the ocean in a controlled entry. Then the second stage will proceed on up into orbit. Once it gets into orbit, the Dragon will separate and it will then fly on its own up to the space station. We'll be at an orbit below the space station at 325 kilometers. 
At that point, the second stage will do a little evasive maneuver to, to get a little bit away from the dragon. It'll turn around backwards, and at that point, it'll start deploying the CubeSats. That's about 10 minutes into the mission, mm -hmm. and we'll start deploying the CubeSats on three-minute intervals. We'll do one P-Pod, then the next, and the next three minutes apart until they're all separate. How many P-Pods total are uh, on this uh, mission? We have four P-Pods flying on the mission with five CubeSats, and um, they should all be gone within about 16 minutes or so of launch. So after the deployment of the uh, P-Pods, is your job over? Uh, no, the job's never over because there's other CubeSats to go launch, so we'll move on to the next mission. At, at that point, my job is really kind of over, but for the CubeSat teams, their job just begins because now they get to operate their spacecraft on orbit until they re-enter. But we have a large backlog of CubeSats that we're trying to find rights for, so uh, I'll move on to the next one. We want to find out about these CubeSats, so Gabrielle, I just wanted to ask you, All-Star Thea, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit about uh, what All-Star Thea is? So All-Star Thea is a 3U CubeSat, which means it measures about 10 by 10 by 34 centimeters. So the goal of All-Star is to be a modular CubeSat bus, which means that it provides kind of the fundamental operations necessary for a satellite, like communications, attitude determination, power, and then the other half of the CubeSat is reserved for a science payload, so you can really plug and play with different payloads. Okay, so then is Thea your, your payload then for this? Yes, yeah, so Thea is an optical imaging telescope. Uh, it's basically a five megapixel camera that we're going to point at the Earth and take pictures with. It'll prove out all the systems on the uh -oh. All-Star bus. Well, uh, do you have any potential targets you're looking at with these photos? or? Oh, uh, we're trying to look at mostly major landmarks, uh, pick out rivers or items that are really easy to kind of identify on a map. And it is mostly a technology demonstration for this first one, but with future payloads, we hope to refine the, the design. It has a lot of potential, I think. Uh, Matt, now you are, you are uh, your CubeSat is uh, TSAT, mm -hmm. correct? and you're from Taylor University. Yep. Tell us a little bit about TSAT and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, it's uh, three primary objectives. The first one is to test the uh, Global Star Communication Network. Um, we're gonna be mapping out the coverage of it. Well, most satellites, you get very limited coverage because you have you know ground stations you fly over maybe twice a day. While with Global Star, we'll be able to get almost um, real-time feeds because we're communicating to a satellite network. So basically uh, avoiding the whole uh, ground station uh, challenge. Mm, very, very convenient. will obviously be very helpful to <laughs> yeah. everyone down the road. How long will uh, TSAT be traveling? I mean, obviously it's a complex test, but how long will you be uh, maintaining this communication across satellites? It'll be six to eight weeks. So it'll be orbiting from about 320 kilometers down to 100 over the course of that time and then finally burn up. Now. I has Taylor, is this a first satellite for you guys, or is this a, a, a long-term project? How do, how do, what's the history of this project? It's the first satellite to be launched. It has heritage from as far back as 2001, from a, you know, TU-SAT-1, TU-SAT-2, TEST-SAT. So we've been you know, working on these designs and perfecting them for quite some time. So you know, we don't owe all of our success just to ourselves, but to a long line of people who've been contributing. All Star Thea, is that a is that a first for uh, your school, or have you guys done other uh, CubeSats as well? Uh, yeah, we actually were part of the Alana One program with our first CubeSat Hermes. It was just a one U, 
and then I work as part of the Colorado Space Grant Consortium at the university and they've actually done several satellites before now. The last major satellite was the Dandy that just launched in the fall and that had a lot of successes over the course of its mission. I'm with Zach Manchester, the founder of Kicksat, which is probably the most unique CubeSat being launched on, on this Falcon 9 today. Tell me a little bit about Kicksat. Well, Kicksat is uh, sort of a mothership we built. It's a 3U CubeSat, so it's uh, you know 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters, about the size of a loaf of bread. And aside from sort of the usual CubeSat stuff, it has a deployer in it for about 100 of uh, our chipsats, which we, we call sprites also. And these are tiny uh, three and a half by three and a half centimeter, about five gram satellites. So these are the world's smallest spacecraft. That's just, uh, that's incredible. Is it a deployer within a deployer? So your kicksat is in the Peapod. That's right, which yeah. Which deploys. <laughs> yeah. And then now you have a deployer of your, of your own too. That's exactly right, yeah. It's kind of a nested uh, Russian doll kind of setup, I guess. Now, the cool thing why I'm attracted about this particular CubeSat is the fact that you actually uh, started this program on, on Kickstarter. Yeah, that's right. So uh, a couple years ago, um, a call for proposals for uh, NASA's Alana program came out, and uh, we, we saw that and we you know, wanted to go for it. We had developed this chipset technology to a point where we felt we really had to fly it in space to sort of take that next step and, and advance it to the next level. And uh, Alana you know, came around and it looked like a great opportunity. We really wanted to go for it. And uh, unfortunately, we still needed some money to actually build the spacecraft hardware. And uh, this was right around that, you know, Kickstarter was kind of new and getting a lot of uh, press and I had heard about it and looked into it a little bit and it looked like a great way to go. It looked like, you know, something that we might be able to do, it might work out. So basically applied for Yolanda launch and then put our, our project up on Kickstarter right about the same time and we were, you know, very fortunate and, and both panned out and that's why I'm sitting here. Well, that concludes the subject matter expert portion of our Best Of show, uh, which leads us to the reason we were actually at the Kennedy Space Center. To actually see the launch that should have taken place on the 14th, but didn't. Everything is go. You can see right now that the uh, SpaceX uh, 3 is on the launch pad, and you know, it, it, it went off without a hitch. We got confirmation that after the launch, the uh, CubeSats were successfully deployed. And uh, overall, from right now, from what we can see, that that launch overall has been a success. Five, four, three, two, one. And liftoff of the Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon. SpaceX 3 is underway. An American commercial spacecraft launching from U.S. soil makes a special delivery of new science and technology to the International Space Station. We heard from uh, PhoneSat and KickSat. We had a, a buddy of ours, uh, Justin Foley, who was uh, somewhere in the Midwest uh, tracking uh, the CubeSats and got confirmation from KickSat and PhoneSat. And what about the Falcon 9 lower stage? That's right, they were testing that uh, first stage because at, at some point they want to retrieve that first stage and actually will land on dry land. So that's actually a pretty cool uh, technology. Well, Chris, that concludes our Best of SpaceX 3 launch show. You're watching NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA.